All right, and welcome back, everybody, to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, Episode 10, Nutrigenomics, the study of how the food that you're eating changes your genetic expression. So let me start off by saying that this is a brand new emerging field. This came out of the Human Genome Project in the 2000s. So there's still a lot to be learned about nutrigenetics or nutrigenomics. I'm going to start off by kind of explaining the role of DNA, the role of epigenetics, and then how those epigenetic landscape is kind of changed and expressed through food and environment and other factors. So when talking about epigenetics, you kind of have to start off with describing DNA. So in looking at DNA, you might have seen this kind of double helix structure or like a ladder that has been twisted. Um, That is the main structure of DNA. So the textbook definition of DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid, um, which that doesn't really matter for our purposes. Think of it basically as a blueprint for the for your body reading specific amino acids that then go on to fold into proteins. So essentially, it is your code. It's the code that is unique to you, and it's this kind of rigid um, foundation, really, for who you are. So if you think of it like a foundation for a house, if you pour a foundation, say 2,000 square foot foundation, the size of that foundation will never change. If you want to add more square footage onto your house, you could add a story and you could create more square footage in your house, but the foundation, that stays the same. That's kind of like your DNA. It's not really flexible. You might have some mutations and things that can occur, but by and large, it's this kind of rigid blueprint that gets passed on to you. Genes are just a segment of DNA. They're kind of DNA fragments that, again, get passed down to you through heredity. And when looking at the Human Genome Project back in 2000, they discovered that the human species has about 20,000 genes, or kind of just around there, a little more than 20,000 genes, which is about the same as a lot of other living animals. It's about the same as most living things, actually, which is interesting when you're talking about humans because we tend to consider ourselves so more complex than a lot of the species out there, which is true. I mean, we are. So the questions kind of began to pour in. How can we be this adaptable when we're only coding for this many genes? Questions like, what about genetically identical people? Twins, for example, can have profoundly different experiences with health, with environment, with body composition, and that's where epigenetics comes in. So epi in Greek means above or on. So what we're talking about when we talk about epigenetics is what's happening above your DNA or above your genome or on your genome, essentially. So Not to get too technical with this stuff, but I'll do my best to kind of give common language around it, it easy to kind of understand. But in your DNA, so imagine these kind of long 
ladder-like, twisted ladder-like double helix strains that wrap around what's called a histone protein. So it's almost like toilet paper wrapping around a toilet paper roll, right? So the cardboard that the toilet paper wraps around, that would be the histone protein. And your DNA makes about two turns around these proteins. What epigenetics shows us is that depending on the chemical markers, so there's these tags, or what's called epigenetic tags, that latch on to the histone protein or the DNA itself. And what this does, it either relaxes and kind of unwinds the DNA strands from those histone proteins, or it kind of coils them up tighter. When it unwinds it, then you can have other receptors that start reading the DNA or that start translating the DNA that start making amino acids, and then those amino acids get linked together to form proteins. And then those proteins fold into a complex structure, and that's what goes through your body, through the cells, and have these receptors that those proteins bind to, which this process is called protein synthesis. So really what we're talking about is the DNA, so that double helix structure is static. It reads, it has the same order throughout your life. It doesn't really change unless something bad happens, like a mutation. I mean, you do get mutations, but regularly, and usually nothing happens. But typically, it stays the same, so it's pretty rigid. Whereas those epigenetic tags that stick on to the protein, to the histone protein, or the DNA itself, those are dependent on environment and Diet are two very primary drivers. We're going to specifically be talking more about diet because that's what nutrigenetics is. It's about how the food that you're eating changes those epigenetic tags. And then those replications in that protein synthesis have cellular memory, this genetic memory that kind of multiplies these tags on the cell. So when people say you are what you eat, that's very true. But it goes beyond that. You're what you eat, and you're what your parents ate, and you're especially what your grandparents ate. So it goes back generationally, which is why I talk so much about generational longevity through nutrition, because that really is where a lot of the focus is going, and a lot where the focus should be going when in regards to nutrition study. And like I said, this is a brand new study. So they look, they're looking at different epigenetic drugs that people can do to change the epigenetic kind of landscape. If you think of it like a landscape, it becomes easier because it's this dynamic, ever-changing, kind of morphing um, thing that controls what genes are expressed, what they're, if they're turned off or if they're turned on, essentially. And it's a very, very dynamic or flexible system. So you'll hear terms like genetic flexibility or epigenetic flexibility being kind of tossed around in literature and with people that are studying this. Um, and it's very true. It's a very, very dynamic, flexible, ever-changing landscape or system. So what I really want to do and what I'm really interested in, and I am currently taking more nutrigenomics classes right now, um, it's an area that you don't really get into in a conventional nutrition program. Most of it is continuing education, so taking 
a class right now in nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics. So I will have more information as I go through that class. Um, and I want to relate it to you guys because this is an area that I'm kind of most interested in. And you can definitely relate it back to kind of everything that we've talked about concerning wild foods and how that changes your body and how you're building your body out of foods off of your landscape, which that's going to be kind of the primary focus of this episode. Okay, so with epigenetic tags, you're looking at essentially two classes or two types of genetic tag that gets hooked on. They're very, both very similar in their structure. So one is a methyl group and another is an acetyl group. And you have, they're, en they're a class of enzymes. They're enzymes that hook on. So you have enzymes that will hook on or add methyl or acetyl groups or enzymes that strip them away, so off of the DNA and off of the histone protein. <clears throat> and depending on what you have going on internally, that, again, is a very flexible, dynamic situation that'll be happening, you know, minute to minute, essentially. So these methyl groups or these acetyl groups, those are kind of what are classified as metabolites or kind of the end product of metabolic pathways or metabolism. So you're left with these, essentially they're kind of a hydrogen attached to two carbons and it kind of forms like a claw, almost like, remember those uh, games you would play that you tried to grab the stuffed animal with the kind of silver claw? and it was super tough to grab onto, it's kind of shaped like those. Um, this kind of three-pronged claw that essentially hooks onto the histone proteins or the DNA. And the way those are affected is predominantly through food and metabolism and environment also. So environmental toxins and just the environment you're in also changes that dynamic in your body substantially. So you have foods that are considered to be methyl donors or acetyl donors or foods that tend to um, take those away, to kind of strip them away. Most of these metabolites are produced in the gut, meaning they're a product of the microbiome. And we've talked a little bit about the microbiome, but this is kind of the direct link with your genetics and what you're eating. It's through the gut. It's through this microbiome. We've talked about how the microbiome is about 70% of your immune system, and it also controls a huge, huge portion of this kind of methylation or this kind of epigenetic landscape that we're dealing with and talking about. So the microbiota is made up of kind of four different things, a kind of a composition of four different things, which are bacteria viruses, fungi, and then protozoa. So you get this huge, huge kind of mixture of all of those in the gut, and they all break down and ferment things and break nutrients down into metabolites, really. Um, and then that plays on your genetic expression. So essentially, 
the the more diverse your diet can be, meaning the more species you're taking into your gut and the more gut flora that you can supply, the more robust the epigenetic landscape is going to be because the more it has to regulate if things get askew. Does that make sense? So by eliminating foods, whole kingdoms of foods or certain food groups, then your immune system gets suppressed. And this is how that suppression occurs. It occurs because the metabolites, there aren't as many. And your genetic expression gets suppressed a little bit. So that's why going on a strict diet, like we've talked about in previous episodes, will suppress the immune system. It doesn't regulate it. It suppresses it, which is a big, big difference. Meaning it almost, if you have immune system issues or dysfunction, then it's going to quiet them, but it's almost a masking effect. Because as it starts to tweak and subtly change that epigenetic landscape, then those cells start to replicate with those subtle changes. And you pass those down to the next generation and to the next generation after that. Because all of that genetic information is passed down to all the way down to your grandkids. Is this making sense? So subtle shifts in this epigenetic landscape will create this generational cascade where you may not see it affecting your body, but you could see it in your grandkids. But just because you're kind of predisposed, and that's where this idea of kind of predisposition comes from. If Just because you're predisposed doesn't mean you can't change it. It doesn't mean you can't alter that epigenetic landscape because you absolutely can. So people that are, let's say, predisposed for breast cancer, where breast cancer is running in the family, and doctors want them to proactively do a double mastectomy before they get cancer is a little crazy because there's no reason to really hack a body part off if there's nothing wrong with it. But people do it every day. Where if you just controlled that epigenetics and you ate foods that encouraged that type of predisposition not to develop, then you could stave that off before you ever had a problem. And obviously, I'm generalizing here a bit. It's a little more complicated and a little more nuanced. But that is kind of how things are expressed. I mean, the food that you're taking in has a direct influence on your genetics and what genes are kind of put forth and then multiplied. And it's important to note how flexible the microbiome is as well. There's a great example of a professor, Tim Spector. He went to live with the Hadza, which is a tribal group that has essentially been intact since the beginning in Africa. What he found was, and he, he measured his microbiome before he left, and then he took t- microbiome testing when he got back. And what he found was that with three days living and eating a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, his microbiome increased beneficially by 20% in three days, which is amazing. But as soon as he got back, within three days, it had pretty much gone back to normal. So as quickly as it changed, then it reverted back. And it's important to know, again, what the microbiome is. It's a mixture of bacteria, fungi, 
viruses and protozoa. So we think usually think of viruses as being really bad. I mean, especially right now, that's a really, really hot button issue. But we need viruses. We need them just as much as we need bacteria. I mean, we used to think bacteria was bad too until we discovered the microbiome. And I've talked, I've alluded to the microbiome a little bit in previous episodes, but this microbiome is vitally, vitally important. We would be dead without viruses. They need to be in balance, just like bacteria needs to be in balance. But you literally would be dead if you didn't have viruses in you. Which kind of brings me to mitochondria, because mitochondria is very important in the study of epigenetics and DNA. Mitochondria has its own separate DNA, and so it has its own separate epigenetics expression as well. And what mitochondria are, they're viruses. They, pro- they produce the ATB or the energy that we get from the cell. So every cell has a mitochondria or usually multiple mitochondria in it. And it produces the energy that our body uses, produces our cellular energy. And if we have mitochondrial disruption, then we're going to have major, major cellular energy deficits that, again, affect the epigenome in huge, huge ways. It's also important to note that it's the woman that passes down all the mitochondrial DNA to the offspring. So men don't contribute any mitochondrial DNA, but that doesn't mean that men can just ignore their mitochondria. Because if, again, if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, it will disrupt the epigenetic function in your body. And a lot of times it changes the materials in your sperm and it can affect the genetics that you're passing on. So they're starting to look at how mitochondrial methylation and this mitochondrial kind of epigenetic is changing men's sperm and they become infertile or they pass down um, different epigenetic traits that can be harmful. So autism is something that's being looked at right now with men, men's sperm and changes in men's sperm due to mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, you can look at a man's sperm and you can tell whether or not if there are kind of markers for autism now, which is pretty interesting. So if you're planning to have kids, it's super, super important that you are both preparing your bodies before you have kids if you want the best possible genetic traits you can be passing down to your child. And remember that that child has all the DNA, mitochondria, and eggs or sperm already being made in it, meaning that they're going to pass down all the genetic information made out of your genetic information to their kids. So it's two generations down the line from you. So again, vitally, vitally important that you prepare your body on a nutritional level before you have kids, not only for your kids, but for your grandkids. Infertility statistics are pretty interesting. I mean, one out of seven, roughly, people worldwide can't have kids. In the United States, it's 
a little even worse than that, um, and it's on the rise. 50% of those cases are down to men being infertile or having fertility issues. So again, super important that you protect the mitochondria and you protect those energy outputs for the cells. And you can do that through um, multiple different ways that we'll kind of cover in an upcoming episode. But I want to put this idea out there that it is super, super important to prepare your body before you have kids. Statistically speaking, infertility rates have gotten so bad that we're not having enough kids for the next generation to even replace itself, which is, this is the first time in history that that's ever happened. And that's down to nutritional environmental factors, essentially. It's down to the epigenetics, which is um, a bit scary, which is why this field is becoming such an increasing field of study. So I want to swing kind of back around to the microbiome and this idea that the more species you can be eating, the more robust your microbiome is going to be. Tim Spector's example with the Hadza is a great example. The Hadza, on average, eat about 600 different species of food per year, and they have the most robust microbiome on the planet. They've been tested, and they literally have the most robust microbiome because they're eating the most diverse diet. They're eating the most species-diverse diet. As Americans, and this is a bit hard to kind of get really hard numbers on, but generally speaking, Americans eat about 30 different types of species. So you're comparing people with the same genetics, the same species. One's eating 600 different species, and one is eating 30 different species. And you wonder why our microbiome is a wreck and we have health issues. So again, with this idea of eliminating full kingdoms of food, full species out of your diet doesn't really make a lot of sense if you want a robust microbiome that has the flexibility to protect epigenetic, to protect cellular division and make sure that things are regulated, not only for yourself, but for multiple generations that come after you. You can see small changes in the epigenome when you look at Things like vitamin D deficiency when babies are in vitro and pregnancy, a lot of times it will lead to childhood asthma and occasionally adult asthma. Vitamin B12 is another interesting one. It, if you're lacking vitamin B12, the enzymes that need to carry through the epigenome, it's associated with Down syndrome and also colon cancer. So you can see how these just subtle tweaks and variations that may not seem like such a huge deal in your life because you don't really notice them day to day can have drastic impact. And these things can start to pile up generationally because just because you can't tell if you're a little bit deficient doesn't mean these things aren't going to build up through the generations and cause potentially major life-threatening issues. And I'm not meaning to freak anybody out with any of this stuff, but it's important to know that you want to pass down very, very solid genetics and epigenetics, and that your body is adaptable. And even if you have deficiencies, you can change them, and you can change your epigenetics. 
it is that flexible and it doesn't take a ton of time. Hormones get really interesting too because that ties directly in with your epigenetics and with your immune system. So we talked about kind of the microbiota and it also really, really factors on inflammation and the cytokine response that your body produces against that inflammation. So you have what's called a cytokine cascade or a cytokine um, kind of storm. You hear that with COVID sometimes. There's a cytokine storm. And those are just markers of inflammation or those are just, that's just inflammation through your body. So again, the more you can nutritionally build the your body and your microbiome, the more that this stuff is just going to be kept at bay, the more regulated all this stuff can be nutritionally, which is a very different approach using food essentially as medicinal compound. I mean, don't get me wrong, they do have epigenetic medicine that people are using. But like any other medication, it's kind of like napalm for your body, right? It is highly, highly effective, but there are side effects and there are things that come out of that that may not be extremely desirable. Just kind of like antibiotics, right? Like you kill the microbiome with antibiotics and it can be hard to replenish. We're starting to kind of see that now where you have antibiotic resistant bacteria that have again, learned through this genetic memory to become resistant to antibiotics, right? And it creates this kind of environment of superbugs. You see that with crops as well. We talked last episode a lot about uh, genetic engineering, and now you're seeing kind of GMO or glyphosate-resistant beetles and things like that. So things and species are adaptable. It's not just us that's highly adaptable. And this is down to the epigenetic and cellular memory that our cells divide with, these epigenetic tags. So this stuff is very, very crucial to living on this planet and in an environment that is ever-changing and that we are ever-adapting to. And that's why the more you can get out on a natural landscape and the more you can become a part, literally a part of the environment, through your epigenome that's going to regulate things internally for you the more you can eat food that is right off of your landscape close to you is going to set you up to live in that environment that you're living in i mean historically we didn't get foods from around the world we didn't travel to other places to eat food we ate what was local to us what we could walk to and so you hear ideas about eating your the diet from where your relatives came from or something like that, you know. And it doesn't really hold up when you start to actually look at this stuff because, again, the epigenetics are flexible. They're already adapting to the environment that you're in. And so why would you eat, if you came from Spain, why would you be eating a Spanish diet if you're living in Kentucky? You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We know, we've always known that the human species and the other species are extremely adaptable. So you're going to be way better off being built from the foods that are on your natural landscape. And the more that you can have true epigenetic health, the more that you're going to pass that down. Because again, the more 
regulated and better off the next generation is going to be. And if they continue on path of good, solid epigenetics, then they're going to pass that down. And so really, that's why, again, this idea of teaching your kids how to interact with the landscape and how to interact with food and becoming a part of your ecology and the natural cycles around you is of crucial importance if you want to pass down health. Because nutrition is far more than just looking at a reductionist kind of isolated nutrient compound approach and seeing it how it affects the genes. And that's how a lot of this stuff is studied. It's studied with things like betaine, for example, is a great example. So beets are a, what would be considered a high methyl donor. So they donate a methyl group. And that will go to a histone protein or the DNA, and that will either turn off or turn on gene expression. But when you're looking at an isolated compound like that, you miss out on all the cofactors that are needed for that enzymatic reaction. You need cofactors. Enzymes need cofactors, right? And so on paper, it may look good. But in real practice, things start to break down a little bit. In real practice, you need diversity and you need kind of the whole plant. Again, that's the difference between healing your body through whole food nutrition versus correcting sickness or disease through medication, right? There's a reason why you need to be on constant medication. It's because it doesn't actually fix the underlying issue. If you start doing that with food, then you start fundamentally changing the epigenetic landscape. And once you start doing that, then you get a difference in cellular division. Does this all make sense? Is this becoming clearer? That it is very, very important that you have robust health, not just for you, but for your kids and grandkids. And then, man, if you're coming off of generational kind of dysfunction, if some type of sickness or disease has been running in your family line, then what a great opportunity to figure out what types of nutrients you need to increase or decrease to basically correct that deficiency or sickness or disease, because you can do it. The epigenetics, again, are super flexible. You may not get instant relief, but keeping the blood built with things that are going to supply your unique genetics is extremely important. This And this, this idea of building the blood is with nutrients and proper nutrients that fit your own needs is a very new kind of concept. I mean, historically, we've known it. Historically, we've known medicinal compounds to go to, and we've known kind of how to correct certain things. Just kind of through trial and error and through just year, you know, generation after generation of ancient wisdom. And that was back when we were, you know, if we were hunter-gatherers, we were intimately connected with our landscape. But now that we've become more and more disconnected, we've gotten sicker and we're carrying those genetic predispositions through the next generation and through multiple generations for that matter. And so if you are dealing with some type of kind of hereditary syndrome, then it would behoove you to really figure out how to dial in 
proper nutrition for that. Um, and that's what I'm really interested in, is how do we correct this kind of generational line that has been passed down if we need to correct it? And a lot of people do. You know, you think about things like, um, take an easy example, like psoriasis or, you know, something like that, right, that gets passed, can be passed down. There's a genetic component to that. But that's a gut and microbiome issue and one that can be fixed through time and trial and error through your own microbiome and tweaking your own epigenetic foundations. So this isn't a lost cause. I mean, this should be more empowering than anything, really. It is to me. You know, you also can look at things like what's classified as an MTHFR gene modification or what's known as the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, so MTHFR. It's been shown to alter folate metabolism pretty severely. So people are at risk for neural tube defects and cardiovascular disease. And this is something that actually runs in my family. Um, doesn't mean that it can't be corrected. Uh, and so it's things like that, right? Um, there's genetic testing you can do now for relatively inexpensive. Um, you can even look at epigenetic testing to see if there's anything really in particular. But these are kind of what I've been kind of outlining are known as singular nucleotide polymorphisms. So these kind of polymorphisms are just a, a change in one single molecule of kind of DNA, one single nucleotide. Um, and a lot of that has to do with kind of where your family is coming from and what genetics have been passed down generationally. So that MTHFR gene, although it contribute to folate issues, it also is protective against colon cancer. So there's a bit of a give and take there, right? There's a reason why that got kind of integrated into the genome, right? There's a reason why that modification ended up being there and passed down generationally. It was to limit colon cancer, but it also tweak folate a little bit. And if you're not really synced up and in, in line with your family's kind of hereditary pathways and synced up to your own specific environment that you're living in, things can kind of spiral out of control a little bit. And so it's something to consider. It's something I consider. Knowing that that runs in my family, I better be making sure that I'm hitting good solid folate markers. Um, so it's little things like that, right? That definitely have to consider. It's again, it's not just about your nutrition and your health. It never has been. This is a community. You're coming from people. You've got your grandparents DNA and luckily that generation most of the time was eating pretty clean, healthy, nutritious food because most of them had gardens and most of them were doing some hunting and fishing and things like that. Not always, but Believe me, that type of lifestyle contributes to your health today. But what's it going to look like moving forward, right? I was looking up 3D printed food last night, and I mean, the articles I was reading was, they were a bit terrifying, honestly. Um, you know, they want to make it the food of the future, you know, and I'm not really down to um, have 3D printed food. It's literally a paste that I was reading an article about how a professor was so excited because her uh, kids were eating um, spinach paste that were in the shapes of dinosaurs. And 
man, it's, um, that's going to be a pretty sad world. And, but what's that going to do generationally is my question. You know what I mean? What's it going to do generationally when we kind of move into a virtual kind of reality situation or an augmented reality situation where we're that much more disconnected with our environment, you know, and then we're just living on 3D printed food? It can't be that great for genetic health and epigenetic robustness that you want to pass forth. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't know where things are going to go, but this is why I take an ancestral look at things. Because if you don't, then you really have no idea what to do moving forward. And so, yeah, this stuff becomes very, very important. And I think that moving into the future of food, it's going to become increasingly important because genetic engineering and monocropping foods and depleting soils and all of those factors to quote unquote feed the world reduces the microbiome. It reduces your gut health. It reduces the amount of minerals you're getting because the soils are depleted, right? All of those contribute not only to your health, your direct health, but again, generational health. So this stuff becomes very important and it's going to be increasingly important. And this is, we are in the cutting, cutting edge of this type of nutritional work. I mean, it's only been done maybe the last 10 years. Uh, it's a very, very new field of study, but it's only going to get bigger. And I hope that its sole focus isn't just on drug use and medications. I hope that they, at least some people, take a little bit more of a whole foods approach to this, because in my opinion, that's what needs to be done. In my opinion, that's the, really the only way to go, you know, because taking beta blockers or statins to lower cholesterol, that's not generational health. That's not supplying your epigenetics with that you can pass down generationally, you know. And honestly, some people have it worse than others from kind of a genetic perspective or even an epigenetic perspective. Some people have to work a lot harder depending on kind of what they're born with and born into. Because an environment really does matter. You look at something like some really bad kind of chronic syndrome like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or even MS. A lot of that is contributed to a harsh environment. And what I mean by that is kind of chronic stress. So a lot of times it can be triggered by head injuries or kind of chronic um, stressful environments, especially in development, in developmental years. So there's a neurochemical that plays on the genetics called Fertalkin, and that is something that if that gets depleted through chronic, chronic stress in the brain, then the cytokine response will kick in and cause kind of severe inflammation, and that runs down the spinal cord through the cerebral spinal fluid, and it can cause kind of wide-body um, inflammation, but it's particularly kind of bad in the brain to have neurological inflammation like that. So environment, when I say environment affects epigenetics, it absolutely does. And you can measure that through neurochemistry or through the, throughout the body, because the brain and the body are intimately connected through the spinal cord. And you see that in the cerebral spinal fluid that runs in between the spine and the brain. 
And that sent, there's a central nervous system component to that, which kind of in return can be an autoimmunity type issue where you take something like multiple sclerosis and you're dealing with neurons that start losing their myelin sheath. They lose that coating that speeds up neural transmission. The body starts kind of disintegrating that. Um, and usually that is down to inflammation. Usually you end up getting kind of lesions and you get programmed cell death, which is called apoptosis. So, which is a normal component to cellular division, but you don't want an extreme amount of inflammation because then the cells try to create space and they start killing themselves off through this programmed cell death or apoptosis. Um, so, again, it's just kind of inflammation being way, way out of balance. An environment can absolutely dictate that. Another good example is looking at muscular tissue. There is an experiment that was done where they packed muscle cells into a little Petri dish with kind of like a Teflon-type coating so they could slide because muscle cells slide because they that's how muscles flex and relax. And what they found is if you pack the muscle cells in too tightly, they will kill themselves off automatically through apoptosis. And if you don't pack enough into the Petri dish, then the muscle cells will start to multiply to try to fill in the space, right? So when I'm talking about environment and your body adapting to its environment, there are multiple things that are going on at once. And so it becomes really, really important that your body becomes connected into that. Because if it isn't, it starts to play on other systems. So the stuff becomes very, very interesting when you start linking up nutrition and environment and how the environment really does dictate your nutritional needs. You know, some people really have to get things very disciplined and very dialed in nutritionally and environmentally to be able to thrive. But it is possible. You at least can make it better. And anytime you can create just slightly better epigenetics through food and environment and additional factors, then that next generation is going to be better. It also gets really interesting when you're talking about other mammals, especially in a zoo environment. So the study of zoology is pretty fascinating because what they found when studying animals that are caged in zoos as, is that they live longer. Their lifespan is actually increased, but what happens is their health declines. And so you need to be supplemented with antibiotics and different forms of supplements to be able to survive a few more years. Or in some species, they actually survive a lot longer. With carnivores and kind of apex predators that were naturally on a landscape, then being in a zoo, they tend to have extreme behavioral problems. They go a little bit, they get aggressive and they go a little bit crazy being cooped up because they're not in their biological environment. And that's essentially kind of what humans are facing right now is we've been closed off to our natural biological environment 
and people are starting to get sick and we need more drugs to kind of keep us going. Technically, we're living longer, but we're not thriving anymore. And we're passing those things down generationally, which becomes very, very interesting. There's a book written by Desmond Morris. It was written in the 60s. It's called The Human Zoo. And it kind of takes a look at all this. He was a zoo curator. He built and designed these animal habitats in throughout London. And he kind of started correlating um, this kind of modern lifestyle we've been living in with people being, with animals being caged in the zoo. And he basically extended that out to current humans and how they've been kind of caged in this human zoo. Um, and it's a pretty good analogy because it starts to explain subtle changes in the epigenome and nutritionally. And even if you have to be on heart medication or, you know, some type of medication to kind of keep your body going, if you can support your body nutritionally, your epigenetics are going to be that much better as well. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, to be healthy, you have to come off of every medication because that's not necessarily realistic. But the more you can move to a healthier lifestyle and healthier nutrition, the more your body is going to be supported. And so, again, if we're going to move to a world of 3D printed food and disconnection from our landscape, we're going to have an uphill battle. It's going to be tough. So the sooner you can get a hold of this stuff a little bit, the better. The more prepared you're going to be. Because we should already be prepared. If it gets worse, then you'll know what to do, which I hope it doesn't. But we should already be thinking kind of in this direction and looking ahead to correct some of this stuff. Because ultimately it falls on you. You know, it's your responsibility to take care of it. And if you don't, then who's going to, you know? Yeah, something to think about anyway. And we're going to talk a lot more about this stuff in upcoming episodes. I'm going to do a lot more on methylation and acetyl groups and things like that. Um, and again, I'm still going through this course, so it's going to be a few months of me kind of going through. Um, and as I develop more ideas, then I will share them with you. But I wanted to give you a bit of an overview of kind of the direction I'm interested in and headed. And this is honestly kind of why I'm doing this stuff. So stay tuned. There is more to come. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. 